Born in 2009, the son of Marcelo and Silvio Ricardo, a working-class couple from Mendoza, he struggled all his life with the celebrity status thrust upon him as the world's youngest person. Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet, was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours, and 8 minutes old. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rotten Potato Podcast, a podcast where four friends sit down and review movies that you absolutely should have seen. And my name is Zach, and I'm here with three of my good friends. My name is Jake. <laughs> I'm Tyler. <laughs> I was waiting for Tyler because he's normally to Zach's left. I know. I screwed it up. That was my bad. I'm sorry. But we're... Uh, already alluding to the fact that we're not all in the same room together. Yeah, we're recording remotely, mostly because uh, one of us decided to go and have twins. Way to go. Yeah, my bad, guys. And uh, <laughs> I feel like we should say this is our second attempt at recording this episode, and the first one <laughs> went so poorly, we had to wait a week before we tried again. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. It was a deep, deep, hard reset, but uh, no, we, we are, I, at least I am very excited. I think we are very excited to uh, share with our tots that uh, Dad Zach is finally here. I'm here, and uh, last week wasn't even my fault, so that's, that's true. <laughs> I just want to say that. It was, it was definitely my fault. I'm going to say it was no one's fault. It was the... The technical side of things. It, we did have technical difficulties. Uh, apparently, my computer cannot handle uh, a simple Zoom meeting. That's pretty mm-hmm. wild. I don't know how you got through the but pandemic. I will take the blame for uh, the delay. I know we we had to shift to every other week for this, but I'm I'm happy to be here. I watched this movie and. Uh, Got really scared, so I was like, I need to start cranking them out. So, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that, guys. I want to circle back. I like the way how you said uh, Dad Zach is here, as if Dad Zach was delivered and not the babies. Like, we were like... No, it was Dad Zach yeah. was delivered to us. We were, delivered like, outside us. the delivery room. We're like, is he here? Is Dad Zach here yeah. yet? That's, yeah. that's what happened. I was in uh, the OR, and my twins were delivered to me, and then I came out, and the doctor said... Here's Dad Zach to you guys. Mm-hmm. It was pretty awesome. He, he actually carried <laughs> yeah, me to you because we were really, all there. <laughs> it was it was really nice to meet the twins, but it was mostly exciting to meet Dad Zach. Yeah, pop tato. <laughs> when he said he, I deliver to you, Dad Zach, I I got kind of emotional. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. <laughs> I think we all did. I felt a little bit like, why are these babies here? But you know, yeah, yeah. The eyes of my potatoes were crying. Mm, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you never heard of the eyes of a potato? I don't know if I have. What are the eyes of a potato? They're the rotten parts. <laughs> oh, really? It's where there's the little white growth coming out of it. Those are called eyes. That's this podcast. Mm, yeah. I don't like that. I feel like yeah, we, we can... You, uh, I was going to say, I feel like we can come up with a better name for that. Uh, I don't think so. I think we watch all of these movies through our rotten potatoes' <laughs> eyes. <laughs> Okay. That's why we're so rotten. Yeah, <laughs> I go, I buy potatoes, I let them go a little bit bad, and then I make them into little glasses for myself, put them around <laughs> my glasses, and then I watch it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Around or like covering your the, the lenses of your glasses? They, they cover the lenses, but there's just like a little slit for my pupils. Mm. Oh, I don't even have the pupil slit. Oh, okay. I, I just look, I just hold two rotten potatoes up to my, my, uh, occipital <laughs> yeah, sockets. I, I use contacts, so I just cut the eyes off and just smush them into my eyes. You know, Jake, you have said before that uh, you, you don't feel like you have an eye for cinematography. It sounds like it's just because you have potatoes in front of your eyes. <laughs> I think that... <laughs> but we all have potatoes in front of our eyes. I haven't Apparently, been, Zach hasn't been, been doing this. this. <laughs> oh, so just, it's just you that's not doing it, though. Yeah. Okay. Now I understand why he hasn't been liking all the Fast and Furious movies. <laughs> if you just had to listen to Fast and Furious, that would be torture. <laughs> <laughs> but there's such good vocal acting coming out of both Sean and uh, 
What's the main guy's name? Paul Walker. Paul Walker. Vin. Paul. Paul. Pawn and Shawl. Pawn and Shawl. Yep. Is that one in the shops? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Better call Shawl, you know? Pawn and Shawl. It's like Hobbs and Shaw, but... I was gonna say, is this pre or post Hobbs and Shaw? Where does Pawn and Shaw pre fall? way pre? This is way pre? pre. Yeah. Cool. Should we talk about Children of Men? Yeah. Oh yeah. So uh, what what uh, what led you to pick this movie, Zach? Um, I picked this movie because it's just a movie that I really like. Um, I've thought about nominating it for a really long time. I think maybe ever since season one, but uh, I I was just never able to really justify. Picking it because, if I'm being honest, I don't know if it's a movie that you absolutely should have seen. But you know, we're in season four, and I'm running out of movies that you absolutely should have seen that I still really like and want to talk about. And so, I I just picked it. Um, but I do feel like since it came out back in 2006, it's gained um, just more recognition. I think more people have kind of caught on to this movie, um, and it did get a lot of critical accolades back when it was released a lot of critics had it on their like end of the year top 10 list um entertainment weekly and rolling stone both included it in their top 10 of the decade um and then i peter travers the the head film critic from rolling stone said that it was the best sci-fi movie of the 21st century and then Mm. mark webb who directed 500 days of summer i think he also directed the andrew garfield Spider-Man movies. Bangers. He listed yep. it in his top 10 movies of all time, like his personal top 10 list. So it, it has a lot of like, uh, like it is beloved by people within the, um, the industry. And I think it's a really good movie and I'm excited to talk about it. And you know what? It was famously remade into the last of us in 2012. Um, <laughs> When did the game come? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. This is pre the game too. It's exactly the same though. I mean, it's a it's a tried and true blueprint. Um, you know, and you know, like a lot of movies, Point so, Break into Fast wait, and Furious. So that like story the blueprint just works. So I'm sorry. Wait, Jake, are you telling me that the game, The Last of Us? Because I haven't played the game, and to be honest with you, I've only watched the first episode of the show. Are you telling me that that 15 year old is pregnant the whole time? No, it's it's not exactly the same, <laughs> but okay. it is very close. I don't know if we're like Last of Us spoilers territory because the show is happening. Uh, but you know, shows happen. It's actually really yeah, different. It's, over. it's not that similar, to be honest. It's like. <laughs> it's like almost exactly the same, and I could get it, into uh, it as Last the of Us goes on. But Last of Us, Last of Us uh, isn't takes that place. unique of a story. I'm not saying it is, but that I'm. That was I'm one of your. You were fighting me on it. And you're like, it's such a unique, interesting story. No, what I was trying to say, and I'm, I didn't come on this pod to talk about Last of Us, but I was saying that it, it <laughs> felt like a unique way to tell that story through a video game format. But I, I'm not saying it's the first of its, of a. Uh, of its kind to tell this story, especially because this was based on a book that came out even before this movie. But Last of Us spawns like a year and they travel the country. This takes place in like a day or two. Right, right. And crucially, uh, humanity can't have children, which I, I don't think is the plot of The Last of Us. But well, you know what, Jay? No, here's the thing. Reasonable people can disagree. And she, it's it's <laughs> he's, about, he's a guy... <laughs> He's emotionally stunted and uh, from losses in his past that he can't handle and deal with. He's lost a child. And then he can't get close to this child that he's got to transport across country. Why? Because she is the savior of the world. That is the exact plot of The Last of Us. Yeah, I don't know that that's the plot of this movie, but I think it absolutely we're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. Uh, before we do, I'm just curious. Uh Zach, obviously, you have told us that, that you had seen this movie. I had seen this movie before. Who was our late bloomer on this episode? Or bloomer? I'm going to bet me and Scott. Yeah, neither me nor Jake had uh, seen this one before. Interesting, interesting. Well, before we get into your guys' takes, what do you guys say, uh, Scott, what, why don't you give us a little bit of a look at just the facts? Yeah, so this was directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, it was also written by Alfonso Cuaron, along with Tim Saxton and David Arada, who did the screenplay, and that was based off of a novel from P.D. James. Uh, mm. 
It released on January 5th, 2007. Uh, it has a runtime of 109 minutes. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 92%. IMDb gave it a 7.9. Uh, it had a box office of $71 million on a budget of $76 million. So it actually didn't uh, break even. It was in the negatives. About 90% or so return on that one. Uh, didn't win any awards, but it was nominated for three uh, for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. Nice. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Zach, you might know this better than I do. This was coming right off the tails of um, Deathly Hallows, right? Deathly, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban? That's what I meant, Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah, I believe that this came out maybe within a year or two after Quaron directed um, Azkaban. And it's kind of cool that Scott brought up the... Um, the Academy Awards that this movie was nominated for, it, it didn't win any of them. Is that correct, Scott? Correct. Yeah, it, just it was just nominated, nominated. for those three. Um, it's kind of cool, though. 2006 was a big year for uh, Mexican filmmakers. Cuaron, oh. along with um, Del Toro, and then um, Alejandro González Iñárritu. Um, all three of them are kind of considered like the pioneers of the Mexican new wave of films that started at the beginning of the century. And they're all buddies with each other and they all kind of like consult each other and help out with each other on their projects. Um, and this year, 2006 del Toro had Pan's labyrinth, which was also nominated for a few mm -hmm. Academy awards. And I think may have won a few. And then um, same with Inuratu with Babel. That one was also nominated oh, yeah. for a few Academy awards. And so all three of them had, Academy Award nominated films that came out this year, which I thought was kind of cool. And it's kind of cool because this is now we've done a film from all three of those directors. Yeah. And didn't that happen again, Zach, during I think it was like maybe like Gravity Revenant and something else like they they had like a like a another year more recently that they all came out with something, I think. Possibly. I can look into that, um, but I don't know off the top of my head. But that's that's neat. That, I I actually didn't know when you were first telling this story. I was like, oh no! Like I think Zach's talking about a different year, a lot more recent than two thousand seven. But you're right. Like that's that's exactly what happened. Um, but I remember just a few years ago, it was either when uh, Inuritu did Birdman or when he did The Revenant. Uh, that that same year, Quaron and. Uh, Del Toro. Um, Del Toro also came out with that something. That Del Toro did The Shape of Water and it won? Shape of Water. I think so. I think Shape of Water, Revenant, and maybe Gravity all came out in the same year, possibly. Could be. I can. But I could be wrong. I can look into that if you guys want me to. No, that's all right. Don't worry about it. We can just like spurt ridiculous facts on this podcast and no one bothers to fact check us because yeah. we dominate the IMDb Did You Know section. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually add all the facts there anyway, so it doesn't matter. You're the one that adds yeah, them? You know, yeah, you know all the facts that we quote on every episode? Scott made all of them up. That's pretty nice <laughs> Or not you. quotes, the, the facts. Because yeah, I, the, I ignore most of them, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why Scott doesn't pay attention to us when we're, like, quoting trivia, because he wrote it all. Like, he's like, <laughs> I, like I know it. I remember I wrote it. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good on um, you. Well, uh, I I did see this. Actually, Zach, you you obviously mentioned that this is an important movie to you. What do you think watching it again this time? Um, I so this was probably actually not probably definitely my favorite time watching this movie. Um, and I think on one level, it's just one of those movies that the more you watch it, maybe you find more things to appreciate about it. Um, it may also be that it had been quite a while since I had rewatched this movie. And so it was kind of one of those, you know, maybe I um, hadn't been remembering it as fondly as, as I felt about it when I originally watched it and then kind of came to it and remembered like, man, this is a really freaking good movie. Um, but I will also be honest that I think it helped uh, now that I'm a dad, if I'm like, gonna be a little cheesy maybe um actually I, we watched this movie before my kids were born because we were going to try to record this um but then we didn't get to it and so then i ended up re-watching it maybe last week now that i have children and so i kind of watched it like in preparation for my kids being born and then also like after the fact 
having them here. And I think that it just kind of made certain aspects of the movie feel even more compelling slash real and like on some level kind of terrifying, like the idea of being in a literal war zone with my newborn baby, um, feels so much more terrifying and, uh, more easily, like, I feel like I'm able to, to actually, like, kind of place myself in that situation more than I would have been able to prior um, and just, I don't know, um, experience, like, how how scary that would be. Um, but all in all, mm. um, yeah, I, I loved it even more so this time than I, than I have in the past. Nice, man. Yeah, you know, I I had seen this movie before and watching it again this time. To be honest, I, I've always known that this is uh, a, a movie that you like a lot, a really important movie to you. And I've tried like a couple of times to watch it and really love it. And I never did for whatever reason. It just didn't resonate with me. But this time watching it through, I was so struck by how excellent of a film this is. Uh, the level of artistry involved in it, uh, the super well-told story, frankly. Um, I think, like, hands down, this is one of the more cinematographically interesting movies that we've done, uh, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But uh, Jake and Scott, the, you were both late bloomers, so mm. Jake, let, let's... Uh, what, what did you think watching this for the first time? Yeah, I had honestly never heard of it, and uh, I knew nothing about it, like zero. So then I started the movie, did not read the description, and I've got to say that I think getting into this movie, knowing nothing about it, is maybe the most jarring experience of all time. Uh, uh. Because like they just start off in a coffee shop, you know, and you don't think like this is a weird post-apocalyptic world, and then all of a sudden like a bomb goes off, and then people like aren't freaking out. And then you realize it's awful. But I spent the first couple minutes of this movie a little bit confused. Then I had to rewind those, watch them again. Um, I thought it was a pretty <laughs> good movie, though. I didn't. I wouldn't say it's like one of my favorites. Uh, I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought some of the, you know, Zach, you were saying I, I feel like I don't have an eye uh, for camera shots or whatever, whatever you said. I think I noticed some of them in this movie in a way that I liked. I think there were mm. a lot of these like long shots in the action shots mm-hmm. that were that made me very tense like one uh, one of the uh, one of the scenes which was actually uh pretty much directly remade in the last of us uh that i was maybe my favorite scene <laughs> in the movie uh, <laughs> where they are trying to start the car while they uh, they're like trying to run the car uh. to like jump it uh i was so tense and i thought that was a very good scene uh overall that was a good movie i thought it had some really good parts uh but otherwise i thought it was just okay Scott, how'd you feel about it? Um, I thought it was like really excellent in so many ways. I don't think it's a movie that I would go back to regularly. Um, like I wouldn't say it was like a super fun, enjoyable experience, uh, as as Jake was saying. But I think critically, like there was so many things about how they executed it that I was like, oh wow, these guys were kind of like almost masterful with how they were doing things. Um, I think uh, like so many, so much of what they did was to make you feel like you were in the world with the character or you were like seeing the world from um, Theo's point of view. Um, And so like things with like the cinematography where it's like you're staring at the background and it's like moving with the background rather than with like, what you would typically see in a movie like focused on the main character, what's happening with the main character. Um, so I, I, th- I thought it was really good. It was jarring for me too. I thought it, I didn't look up anything about it. I just went into it It's normally a very bad idea for me because I typically don't enjoy movies when I do that. Um, and so started it, I'm in the coffee shop. I'm like, okay, not sure what's happening. Bomb goes off. I immediately pause it and go and read the plot. <laughs> you read the, <laughs> like the, the wow. plot of the whole movie. Yeah. Like I spoiled everything for myself. That's the most I read Scott the whole thing. thing. Ever said. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I got back into it and I really enjoyed it because I knew where I was going. Wild. Okay. I just, I yeah. can't believe that you like, and I mean, it makes sense. I know you, so I can believe it, but like, 
I so much love just being taken on a ride by something that I don't know what's going to happen. And I just can't imagine watching and enjoying movies the way that you do. It just blows my mind every time I think about it. I think I struggle to get on the ride with whoever's trying to get me to go on the ride when that happens. Like they're trying to make me feel something emotionally or like do something. And I'm just, I, when I'm not prepared for it, it doesn't happen. And then nothing's landing with me and it's just a bad experience. Whereas like if I can read what it is, I can kind of get the gist of what they want me to feel. And then it's more easy for me to like lean into those things and experience the movie, how it was supposed to be experienced. Huh. Huh. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it does or not. I mean, I think it makes sense. I just, I can't relate to that, I think, at all. I feel like it makes sense for me in the way that I enjoy rewatching movies or rereading books. Uh, but to me, nothing is the same as the first time I experienced it when I didn't know what was going on. But then I feel like I appreciate different things about it when I watch them again. So I kind of get it. But yeah, it's the, the ultimate experience for me experiencing any piece of content is the first time. So all that being said, critically thought it was really good, um, but not like an uplifting movie, really. Uh, I don't know if I'll rewatch it a ton. I might watch it again, but um, I thought it was done really, really well. Scott, there's a, a particularly damning quote from Quaron. Uh, damning for you. Oh, okay. Uh, based on that take, that specific take. Uh, when he was talking about this movie, uh, he said that there's a kind of cinema that I detest, which is a cinema that is about exposition and explanation. It has become a medium for lazy readers. Cinema is a hostage of narrative, and I'm very good at narrative as a hostage of cinema. Hmm. Just not with me, I guess. <laughs> not with you, apparently. He failed with you. Yeah. He failed. Sorry, do most. Scott's yeah. built different. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting that you bring that up, though, Tyler, because I remember you on a past uh, episode talking about how you hate when directors or storytellers, filmmakers, kind of ham-fist the exposition mm -hmm. to its audience. And I remember like having that... Well, you saying that in my head as I watched this movie and thinking to myself, like, this movie does a really good job at not doing that. I could only, I only noticed one scene where I felt like a character gave exposition that may have felt a little unnatural to uh, the situation or the conversation. And it's with, um, oh man, I'm blanking on what Michael Caine's character, um, his name, Jasper. 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 It's when Jasper yeah. is talking to Theo. And they're driving to his house and there's a bus full of fugies that they drive by. And he, and he kind of talks about the refugee situation. And it was like, other than that, I, I don't feel like this movie ever gives exposition in a way that feels unnatural to the story. And so I felt like um, that was a strength of this movie. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this just now that I feel like in a movie like this, like in any like sci-fi movie kind of like this, you almost always have a character who is completely new to the world so that they have these great excuses to just dump exposition at you because the main character yeah. is so confused. And we don't have that in right. this movie. And they still find a way to bring it in and make it feel natural. Like that conversation you were talking about, Like I understand that it's serving the purpose of just exposition in the story, but it feels like... I mean, if I was... It feels like a natural conversation. Yeah, like if I was in the world and this is what was happening in the world around me and I was like with my friend who and we liked to talk politics, that seems like a conversation we would have had. Yeah. You know? And uh, this movie did a really good job at um, giving us information through media that the characters would have been experiencing in the story, mm. like watching the news footage of baby Diego's death or seeing... Um, like seeing propaganda in the background that's saying like uh, not taking fertility tests is a felony or whatever. It's illegal. Different things like that that just kind of helped shape this world and build this story. Um, in, in some cases, in a way where it is if you don't even notice it, you, you miss that. But when you do notice it, and maybe that was um, a strength for me where I did notice some of those more subtle details of this movie that helped me appreciate it even more. I thought that was really cool, a really creative way to kind of build out the story. 
even down to the details of when uh when the uh I'm blanking on the name is it like the the fishes when the fishes yeah. uh it's fishes when they abduct Theo uh all of the newspaper in that little like stand that they've used to sort of like line the walls and the the windows all of those were faked and like told story of what happened so if you just like if I mean, you can't really read it that well. You can read headlines, but if you just pause the movie on those two shots, like everything on the walls behind them explains what's happened in their world. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a, that's a pretty unique and, and interesting, like attention to detail. Yeah. Are you even just to um, go back to Jake's point about, that conversation feeling natural, feeling like something that he would have had, like a a political discussion that he may have had with his friend. I remember thinking that when Jasper brings up the human project to Theo and then Theo kind of goes on his tirade and then Jasper's just like, I was just trying to make a joke, man. Like Mm -hmm. Jasper had a natural reason to bring up this thing that Theo, he, he knows that Theo already knows all about the human project. He doesn't have to explain that to Theo for the audience's purpose. He's trying to just make a joke but it's a completely natural way for that information to be conveyed to us um, in what feels like a really organic conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I want to I want to spend a little bit of time talking about like how uh, like selective this cast was. Like we have like you know Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, uh, Chiwetel. Asia for however you say his name, Michael Caine, of course. And then uh, what's his name from uh, Sons of Anarchy? Is it Char- Charlie Hunnam, I think? Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, Charlie Hunnam. And then pretty much everyone else in this movie is largely unknown to us, like as actors. Like it's a very sparse film actor-wise. Yeah. For being as like important as it is and you know, as many people as, as who love it. Like it's a very, it's first of all, a very British cast, uh, set in a British movie, which I think is cool. Um, but it's also just, you know, a very like, uh, it's a very like, uh, uh, transparent experience for us as a viewer, because we're not attaching a ton of meaning to all of these different actors in a world today where like Marvel's going to put out a movie and they're going to include Bill Murray in it because why the hell not include Bill Murray in it? It's, it's cool that films can be it, it, maybe not box office wise, but uh, you know, by other filmmakers as well respected, you know, for, for its craft with such a sparse cast. I think that honestly, sci-fi is like the best sci-fi will have relative a lot of relatively unknown people because i think like you're in like a very alien situation and i don't know for me it's it's easier to like accept these people in this world if i if i don't know who they are you know like i'd heard the name clive Mm. owen but i've never seen clive owen in anything Uh, and and i mean like everybody else i'm not gonna say they weren't they weren't believable but i think that like I think it's a good thing for the movie, honestly, for me. Like it helped you. Yeah, it just gonna help me get it immersed yeah. into it. Yeah, I'm yeah. not like, oh wow, Robert Downey Jr. pretty crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it was crazy when he turned out to be pregnant. Yeah, it was wild. <laughs> it's one less lie that you have to like excuse. Yeah. Because they're already lying to us a lot. It's a sci-fi movie. It's future. It's set in the future. Um. They have to lie to us a ton, and it's just one less lie to, that they have to tell. Sorry, just uh, I was a little slow on on the uptake with that joke, and then realized that Scott was saying that uh, Robert Downey Jr. plays the pregnant woman in this movie. And uh, yeah, that's <laughs> correct. Yeah, we we had to. That's, that was we his had to talk Zach. watching you just die like five <laughs> seconds too late. Because <laughs> my first thought was like, what is he talking about? Uh, and then it came to me. And then Scott just like dunked on us. He just like did the whirlpool in his beer and just finished it. <laughs> like nailed that joke. <laughs> he 
did. It was a good joke. Didn't Props I? to you, Scott. That yeah. deserves a whirl. Thank you, Zach, for appreciating. Uh, no, I was saying it was a good thing. That's why I brought it up. It was awesome. <laughs> Sorry. Jake, you brought up. <laughs> I missed Jake. so much of what you just said. Yeah, I'm moving on. Uh, Jake, you brought up uh, you brought up the the long takes, and I think that's probably like I mean we could spend a little bit of time talking about it. It's probably what this movie is is known as well as it is for. Is there's uh, you know I I think three exceptionally long takes. They're uh, pretty much entirely around the three biggest action sequences in the movie. Uh, one of which is when uh, Julianne Moore's character, Julian, uh, gets killed. Uh, what did you guys think watching that whole scene play out? I really, I think that this movie shot and presented action better than many movies I've seen. Like better than a, a movie I've seen in a long time. Uh, and I thought that that was a good scene. Like those, there are three sequences that really stand out in my mind when I think about the movie. And that's those three action sequences: the 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 bike one, uh, the one where they're fleeing, mm-hmm. and then the, mm-hmm. the war scene at the end. I think they're all really good. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, how stressful it must be to be acting in one of those. Because what do you have like a three four minute long take, and then you've just got to hope you don't mess up three and a half minutes in, so they have to start yeah. all over. So, uh, kind of ironically, or not ironic, I guess, at all, but interestingly, since you brought that up, uh, in the battle sequence at the end, you know the moment where, like, Theo runs into the bus and, like, blood splatters on the camera? Yeah. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. they shoot up the bus and blood splatters on the camera. Uh, Kuran shouted cut, but, like no one heard it because the action was so loud that they were filming. So they just kept rolling mm-hmm. because they didn't hear him call cut and he ended up loving it and they printed it. Uh, but they shot that sequence several times. Uh, and if I remember right, it, it took something like two or three hours to set the shot back up when they had to like start over. Oh, it took hours to, to set, the beginning, like the whole sequence back up because all of that, all of that action, like every explosion, every, you know, they have to reset everything up, put all the vehicles back where they're supposed to be bringing new vehicles that, you know, can replace ones that got destroyed. Like it's a hassle. Uh, and thank God no one heard him call cut. Cause that was an exceptional sequence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to answer your question, Tyler, um, those scenes, but specifically the the Julian Moore scene. The first time I watched it, I think that that was one of the more like shocking scenes that I had seen mm. in any movie. Um, I really did not see it coming, and I was already invested. But I remember that taking me uh, like a, a step up, and it's still that. And then uh, that last scene, m- more specifically when um, they're in the war zone in the refugees center and uh, the army hears the cries of the baby. Those are are two scenes Mm. that every time I watch this movie, I probably will stop and rewatch that both those scenes two or three times, but specifically the Julianne Moore scene, because I think it's just a a brilliant scene that is so visually captivating Mm -hmm. everything about it, the cinematography, the, um, just everything that goes into, like you said, setting it up, the set deck, um, and then also the acting. I think the acting is really incredible in that scene. Really specifically, um, Shiwatel is. I think that's how you say his name. Shiwatel in Maybe. that scene is is really great. I think he mm-hmm. and Michael Caine are kind of the two um, MVPs of this movie when it comes to acting. Um, but everything about that scene, I freaking love. Hmm. It's funny because I actually kind of hated the first time we met Michael Caine. Really? Is it because you weren't it expecting didn't him to land be on me? There was like things well, he kept he saying. He knew because he had read the plot. Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I don't know. It just I did I didn't buy it the first time when we leave and then eventually come back. Like it worked for me, but that first time it wasn't. I think I don't know what it. W- I would never say that this is his best performance. Um, because he's an old actor 
and I have probably seen very little of his um, filmography. But I feel like for maybe for people our age, or at least I can only speak for myself, I feel like Chris Nolan has kind of like ruined Michael Caine for me because I feel like Michael Caine is just the same character in every single Chris Nolan movie that he's in. And so right. that's just kind of what I've come to expect. And so to see him in this kind of be like fun and jolly and like this John Lennon-esque hippie uh is really fun. Like it just looks like he's playing a part that he actually is having a good time playing and like actually kind of taking it seriously. Um, and so I really enjoy his character in this movie. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I'm going to agree with you, Zach, and, and we will collectively, uh, politely disagree with Scott. Uh, no, I, I liked him. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I, I loved, you know, from the, from the get go, I, I really loved Michael Caine in this. Um, and I get what you mean, Scott. I, I definitely understand like not fully like connecting with it. And then when they come back to him really connecting with it, because I think that the stakes are a lot higher, um, for the character and, and he really delivers on the stakes. I feel like I don't remember what exact word it was there was a word he kept saying do you guys remember what it was no there's a word the first time we meet him he says it like 15 times oh uh and then the second time we're with him he doesn't say it at all i don't know fuji bloody like i don't know human project no it was i don't remember exactly what it was but he, uh, he, I feel like he has like a, a nickname that he calls theo that i i don't remember but i feel like he calls him that a lot is that it I don't, I don't remember. Okay. Again, All I, that being said. Another character it, that uh, I think Quaron does a really good job building out through background information. You see all the newspaper clippings. And literally, it's just like that, that shot panning across all of them that kind of like Tyler was mm-hmm. saying in the interrogation scene, like it literally tells the story of Michael Caine and his wife, their, their literal story. Um, another uh, really creative creative narrative tactic from Quaron. There Scott, I'm wondering, Oh my God, Scott has just opened up the entire screenplay. And I think he's just going to scroll through the screenplay <laughs> until he finds this is, the word. Is this what you did as soon as the bomb went off? <laughs> you yes. just read the screenplay. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I wish I could joke with you guys. He's literally has a PDF pulled up of the screenplay. How did he get there this from the Jurassic the Park most, IMDb? It took a few jumps. Wow. Yeah, it took a few jumps. I'm wondering if uh, one of the things that he says, and I'm, I'm blanking on what it was, uh, but it, it's something like Kesarasara. It's not Kesarasara, but he there's like a like a non English phrase that he repeats at least once, and uh, it's actually from from art, and that's one of the things that I really loved about this film was how much. Uh, like art Quran brought into this film. Oh, I know what it was. He kept using the word amigo. Oh, oh. <laughs> how, why did that? Why did how that bother dare you? he? <laughs> wow, it didn't make sense for his character. I'm dropping two why? points. And he used it, for this. and he used it so much in the first scene with uh, Theo. And then he doesn't use it at all in the second scene. How do you know Jake. what makes sense to this character or not? Zach, you don't you him. know that British professors don't know Spanish? <laughs> They've never heard it in their lives. You're right. That's true. They don't live uh, relatively close to Spain. <laughs> or having or having deified a human named Baby Diego. <laughs> wild, wild nit to pick, Scott. <laughs> I'm telling you what brought me out of his performance. It was that. Okay. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry, amigo. That's why uh, that's why Kane lost the Oscar that year. <laughs> about yeah. as natural as that sounded for Jake these words, <laughs> but how natural it sounded for Michael Kane. I will agree with Scott that uh, Kane did not deliver the the word with uh, any sort of authenticity to. I say amigo you know, all the time. The language, right, yeah. but I don't know that that's unoriginal to his character. I'm just saying it didn't land for me. That's like, all I'm saying. Like some white people just say things they shouldn't say, you know? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, sure. I feel like I'm just saying I, it I didn't feel like land. I've been called amigo more by white people than I have uh, Mexican or Hispanic people. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever been called amigo. Really, In your life never, really? not once. Does no one consider yeah, you a friend? So. Other than what Jake did a couple minutes ago, <laughs> I called you an amigo. Uh, I'm going to use this opportunity to kind of segue into um, something else that I thought was really interesting, and that being Quaron using his Mexican heritage to um, to influence with this movie. I thought it was really interesting. Um, There's a quote that he says he wanted Britain to feel like it was Mexico City. Um, mm. And he, and this is his words, he wanted to bring like a third world feel to uh, this future picture of Britain. And I thought that was really interesting and kind of a cool way to depict the future, especially when you contrast that to like a lot of other sci-fi movies. And I'll use Blade Runner as an example. Blade Runner, I know that not everyone here has seen it, but I, I've would assume that we all kind of have an idea of what that movie looks like. And it's so future esque and like all these neon lights and looks nothing like what our world today looks like. And that movie is supposed to take place in 2019. Whereas this movie, it, it looks like it could happen in, if the world goes to shit the way it does in this movie and it takes place in 2027. I, thought that was a really cool way to like keep this movie feeling really grounded and realistic. How'd you guys feel about that? I agree completely. I, I feel like this movie felt, uh, uh, maybe alarmingly realistic. Uh, yeah. Alarmingly realistic. Like it, it, it was, uh, it, it felt very visceral to me. It felt like, uh, this is a, a believable world. This, I don't know, like, I, I mean, I think it was good. I think it was very believable. But I don't know that, like, that's, like, a weakness of other sci-fi. I think there's, they're just, it, you're like, even though they're both sci-fi movies, I feel like comparing this to Blade Runner, having not seen it, it's kind of like apples to oranges still. Because, like, this is a post-apocalyptic world. Everything's gone to hell. And presumably, I don't know, I haven't seen Blade Runner, but presumably we made a lot of technological advancements and, you know, the world kind of sucks, but it's not like post-apocalyptic. Mm, no, it's post-apocalyptic. Hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, that's it. interesting. I, I didn't mean to compare it in like uh, this movie does it well and Blade Runner does it poorly. Um, and I guess maybe saying like in the Blade Runner universe, they make more technological advances, which would lead them to that I guess scenario of, of our future is an interesting way to explain that. But I feel like more often than not, it's kind of just like, that's what people in the eighties thought that it might look like in 2019. And then we get to that point and it's like, man, that was pretty off and it's a little laughable. And I think you can still really enjoy Blade Runner or any other movie that kind of does that. Maybe like back to the future Two is another one where we have this like really corny depiction of the future. I don't, dislike Blade, or I'm sorry, I don't dislike Back to the Future 2 because of that. But like when you take a step back and look at it and and kind of consider like that's maybe, it maybe, and, and not to say that like whoever Zemeckis when he made Back to the Future 2 is like, this is what it's going to look like. But just kind of like that that was in people's heads of like what our future may look like is just like a little laughable. Um, yeah, and I, th I think the other thing is that like you're you're looking less than 20 years into the future or 20 years into sure. the future, 2027 yeah. to 2007. Uh, you know, like, I don't know. Definitely. I, I, it's not a, a weakness on Blade Runner's part, but I do consider it a strength of this movie because I feel like this movie um, is trying to be grounded and realistic, and I think that it achieves that. Um, yeah, no, this, this felt like something that, like, if something insane happened, I feel like this could be what the world looks like. In four years. Yeah. I mean, we I feel like we were a hair's breadth away from this happening in COVID. So, you know, <laughs> I agree. No, that's no, I I'm with you. That's that's my whole point is it was it was alarmingly realistic to me. It, it, <laughs> it is almost even more impressive to remember, like, wow, this movie was made in 2006. This wasn't like a post COVID movie. It does like you're right. Um, and that that's something that a lot of critics have kind of said about this movie. Looking back, like just how prescient it was in certain respects. I think it's up there with 
in realism compared to like Sharknado 5. Mm. Okay. It's hard to top. I haven't yeah. seen it, but uh, I feel like it's hard for to me. Top. Sharknado 5 is the best of the Sharknados. But. Sharknado is the reason why I will neither go in the ocean nor to Tornado Alley in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, nor Tennessee. Yeah, I don't want either of those the, things. I don't want the shark or the NATO. The craziest thing in the world to me is when people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you do with earthquakes. When they have, we have like one earthquake a year. They have like nine tornadoes in a year where they live. I don't want that. Yeah. And Britain apparently can't have kids. So like, (laughs) you know. Don't move there. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take an earthquake here and there. Um, All that being said, uh, no, I agree. I think I said that at the very beginning and my initial take was how real it felt um, and how it like felt like you were in it with how they use their cinematography. Uh, I thought acting was really good, too. Uh, the only thing I don't remember, and it might have been good, it was just immemorable for me, was the score. Was oh, there, I loved it. Was it, like, what were, like, some of the scenes where it, like, stood out to you? Um, Really anything where we just have Theo sort of, like, looking off in the distance, his theme kind of comes back. And, like, I'm I'm literally, like, seeing him sort of looking off and that single violin just kind of coming in and like having this really like ethereal and melancholic tone to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also brought in uh, one or two, uh, one or two like historic pieces of composing into the score. Uh, like, Bach historic mm-hmm. it wasn't Bach but but old like that it was a German composer I think and uh, also this wasn't necessarily music but it is music adjacent uh, the when he goes to the Ark of the Arts at the uh, uh, I'm blanking on the actual name of the building but it's the something battery building or something like that um, but when he goes to the Ark of the Arts there's like a pig floating over the top of the building, like a balloon pig. Do you remember that? Like he's talking to his cousin and they're looking out the window and there's like this pig floating in Uh the air. That is literally the cover of, uh, of a Pink Floyd album Mm. called animals. That's cool. (laughs) A little nod to Pink Floyd. Yeah. I mean a big nod to Pink Floyd. It's, it's the, the pig over that building is the cover of the album. And so they literally recreated it for this movie on that album's 50th anniversary. I feel mm. like uh, I feel like they should do that all the time in England. Charles, if you're listening. Yeah, Charles, come on, man. Iron your shirt, too. I mean, I know, I know, Charles, you can't get Elton or uh, Ed or uh, Adele or any of the other living British uh music stars to like do anything for you anymore. So, you know, play some homage to the old, the old folks. Mm-hmm. You did get, Katie. if I put the line at seven years, do you guys think he's going to live longer or less longer? I don't know. How old is he? More than seven. I don't know. It's like 70 something. Already. I think he'll live longer. I mean, I'm sure he has access to great health care. I have no opinion on the Royal family, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have opinions. He's going to die so soon. <laughs> how old is he? I don't know how old he is. Uh, He's going to die so soon, though. So to to bring it back to this movie, I, I I know that Scott hates that Michael Caine says Amigo. But other than that, like, do you guys have any nits to pick with this movie? No, honestly, I, I really don't have any nits to pick. Uh, one of the things, I mean, I kind of alluded to it just now, but another thing that I really loved about it was uh, Curon's, like, uh, like clearly like uh, obsession with like inserting like art, fine art motifs into this movie. Like in the, in the long uh, sequence after uh, they've sort of escaped the fishes or, or I should say Theo's sort of escaped the fishes and the fishes have taken um, uh, what's her name? The character who he's taking the pregnant along. girl. What's her name? I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, she's not even top build on the first page, so I don't know. Anyway, her. Uh, when he's, like, pursuing her 
uh, I think it's in that scene. They like the camera leaves and like stays on this woman, like cradling uh, her fallen, her dead oh, child. Oh yeah, and it's such a powerful moment. And it is literally Madonna and child, the statue, mm-hmm. like just recreated on film. Um, the uh, when they're in the the uh, Ark of the Arts building and they're like having dinner the three of them uh theo his like cousin or i think it's his cousin and his cousin's kid or or something like that uh the the huge art piece behind them is inspired by uh the spanish revolution that like also inspired the story of this movie uh and so like there's just constant like injection of fine art all throughout this film. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really beautiful. I think that like, he's telling a story of not only like the hope for humanity in this girl, but I also think he's telling the hope, the story of the hope for humanity in art, that art is what like carries on after we're gone. And, you know, maybe in, in this world, art is what carried on after we're all gone kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Or all might be gone. Did you mention uh, the when she like reveals her pregnancy and how she poses? Oh yeah, no, that's one too. That is too. That's uh, uh, I forget what what painting it is. The uh, Venus, uh, yeah, birth of Venus, birth of Venus. Hmm. Yep, yep. That when she's standing amongst the cows, she's she's perfectly uh, yeah. like modeling the birth of Venus uh, painting. I think that's a Raphael. Um, Best but. Yeah. Best Ninja Turtle, uh, fourth best Renaissance artist. Uh, that is really interesting, though. I, I had not picked up on all those allusions to different... Oh, it's Botticelli. Not not Raphael, it's Botticelli. He's not mm. even a Ninja Turtle. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like what they had on their pizza. Yeah. <laughs> give, me some, give me some Zaz with Botticelli. Zach, what were you gonna say? I yeah, cut you yeah, off. No, I was. Uh, I, I never want to uh, override TMNT talk. So, but uh, no, what I was saying. Good idea. Yeah, what I was saying was I, I had not picked up on all the allusions to different um, art pieces, but I think that you can definitely make a case, Tyler, what you were saying about the um, importance that art holds in this world, mm-hmm. and I think. <clears throat> You can look at a couple different characters. I think Jasper being one. I think just oh, God, uh, yeah. the the music that he's playing. Um, you can tell that like art is really important to him. And then even Theo's cousin, how it it, it almost feels a little like uh, um, like obsessive uh, on his yeah, part, like very. how he's mm-hmm. collecting these like literal art pieces in such a depressing like like his ho- his home is such a cold. Uh, mm. sterile environment, but he has these like distinguished art pieces and it almost kind of feels like he just, he has nothing left to live for. And so he's just, he's collecting the most impressive art he can get. And it's it, art is the only thing he has left to live for. Um, so I think that you mm. can definitely make a compelling case for that. Yeah. I, I, uh, I loved uh, all of those little moments. There was another thing that I noticed. I don't know. I, I certainly hadn't noticed it before, but when I'm watching a movie for the pod, I, I end up, I, I think, paying more critical attention than I do if I'm just watching for myself. Um, but it was really uh, super weird, maybe, and interesting to me. Um, in the car sequence, when... Uh, Julian dies, the uh, caretaker, and I can't remember her character's name, but the like midwife slash, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. She's peeling an orange in the car the whole time. And I thought it was super interesting to me that uh, then later, after uh, the uh, like Russian woman has brought them to that little, like her home to be like, to hold safe for a little while until they can get to a boat. Uh, They're peeling an orange again. And it's then like, 
in the next scene, essentially, that Theo dies. And so there's, like, some weird, like, oranges and death, like, hmm. as a precursor to death that I thought, like, I'd never noticed that before, but I'm like, why else, like, peel an orange? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, like, it, like, it, it holds no plot point hmm. other than being a harbinger of death. Interesting. Maybe like it's like I don't know like Godfather. Maybe it's a nod to Godfather. I really don't know. Uh, I wouldn't put it past Quaron. Yeah, I I guess I wouldn't either. And he certainly made a lot of other illusions, and so it's a it's a good chance that it's just an Easter egg waiting to be picked up. But like for whatever reason, like he he had such attention to detail throughout this film that I can't imagine that anything like that was left to chance you know no i i think that you're you're probably right and i think you've probably stumbled onto something i didn't pick up on that myself though um yeah it'll it's worth it's worth like going back and like you know just scrubbing through fast forward to those couple of scenes and like pay attention because i don't know and maybe there are oranges elsewhere that i didn't pick up on but i definitely picked up on those um I do have a question that I want to ask you guys, um, and, it, and it wasn't one that I had thought about prior to us recording this episode, but I think Jake brought up something that was interesting, and he compared this to Last of Us and used that opportunity to take a, cute, a couple digs at Last of Us, but <laughs> there's a lot of stories that uh, similarities will be taken into new stories and repeated and maybe recycled, for lack of a better word. Um, but a lot of stories bear similarities to older stories that come before it. Um, and it sounds like that could possibly be an issue for you, Jake. And so I'm curious, like how you guys feel about that? Like it wasn't, uh, I think that there are only so many stories to tell. I mean, there's, there's one hero's journey, you know, like it doesn't bother me. Uh, I was more bringing it up because I remember you saying, wow, Last of Us is such a unique story. And I remember thinking, <laughs> I can think of probably 10 things, including two video games that have this exact same story uh, in its in its essence. Uh, but I, th- I think it's a solid story. Like, it, it's compelling, and it, it didn't bother me. I just was like, wow, Zach loves The Last of Us, because he's making us watch <laughs> the movie. <laughs> there was uh, an element of, I miss The Last of Us, and this kind of like filled that hole just a little bit for me. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't know if the truck scene was in the show, but that truck scene was one of my favorite sequences in the game. It was very tense. Yeah. And it was my favorite sequence in this movie. And I think they were almost the, exactly uh, the same. The truck scene that happens at the very beginning? Of the game, yeah, where you're like pushing yeah. the truck. Yeah. And then the yeah. car, them with the car. Like that, I, I was like, wow, this is, it, it, this is insane that they're this similar. But... <laughs> <laughs> No, I I agree with you, Jake, uh, about a taking a dig at Zach because you had like a free three pointer, yeah. like for sure, definitely Take the shot, definitely shoot your <laughs> shot. Uh, but uh, no, 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 I I agree with you, Jake. I I think that there are only so many stories, and that all stories are drawing upon each other to a certain degree or another. Um, there's very little in the world that is like truly uh, like in a revolutionary way unique. And I think what allows certain stories to shine better than others is how well they tell that basic story. And uh, I feel like Coron told a, a frankly similar story in a way that was very complex and very exacting and very beautiful. And so even if it isn't the most original story in the world, uh, it is certainly one of the most originally told stories. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I couldn't sit here and tell you guys that I disagreed because I like the MCU and it's basically (laughs) the same movie cut and paste. (laughs) Um, Sorry, Zach, did you have more to say about that? Because I had one thing no. I don't want to forget to bring up. I was just going to say, like, just to say something to kind of further damn myself. This really is just a story 
that I really enjoy. And I feel like you can kind of tell me the same story a million times, and I'm probably going to tune in every single time. I'm rereading The Road by Cormac McCarthy right now, which is the same kind of story, and I love it. Um, I liked Logan a lot. Just give me like a a reluctant hero in a post-apocalyptic world that has to escort a weaker vessel, and I'm in. <laughs> that was a that was a pretty superb uh plot synopsis. I'm gonna um keep that in mind for my future picks. Like if I just really want to get in a win with you. <laughs> <laughs> what else can you pick? I'm curious if there's uh, one off the top of your I head gotta, that, that fits think that description. Because I mean like you talked about Logan, but we've already seen that. I'll have to think I don't have anything off the top of my head. Most of what I have off the top of my head are video games, and I can't make you guys play a video game for this podcast. Uh I think Back to the Future 2 is available, but it's not exactly in the same. <laughs> it's pretty similar, it. though. <laughs> Cloud Atlas. Uh, we've talked about doing that also one. I haven't seen it. Uh, I, but I might just. I and might that's just like pick six it. strong characters and six weaker vessels. <laughs> 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 or six reluctant heroes and six weaker vessels. Oh. Uh, well, what do you guys say? Unless anyone has any, oh, anything yes. else that they really want to bring up. Last yeah. thought. And it's something that I very much appreciate about this movie. Uh, and that's that we did not sit there and get into a bunch of why did this happen? Like get into the weeds of like, what's going on? Why aren't people able to conceive? And then we also didn't have a bunch of flashbacks <coughs> to the beginning. Uh, most of the time, right. I don't care. I like set up the rules and let's get going. Like all of that to me right. is just dead weight in most stories. And I very much appreciate that we didn't do that. Yeah. I'm glad you appreciate it. That's that's the thing I think I agree with you. I think I also appreciate the most out of this movie. Yeah. All right, Zach, we're gonna come to you first for ratings. Um I'm I'm gonna go pretty high, boys. I think this is an excellent movie. So I'm gonna give this uh 9.6 um Animals that love Theo. <laughs> That's a good bit. And I'm going to give this uh, eight murdered Julianne Moores. <laughs> uh, Tyler. Uh, I'm going to give this 9.1 fishes. And Jake? I'm going to give this 8.2 amigos. <laughs> <laughs> So this comes out to an 88%. Uh, pretty high. Comes out to movie number 16 on our list. So it made the top 20. I'll be honest. We talked uh, me up on this one I remember being like, oh, I remember really? like coming out of it and being like, I don't know. That's that pretty good. Uh, and I think I was like that at the beginning of the podcast. And then the more we talked about it, the more I was like, actually, I think I was wrong. I think this was better than I remembered. Nice. Yeah. I'm particularly Good. happy to hear that. I think this is my first W of the season. I've been taking some L's. So. You have been taking some L's, but this was a good dub. And, uh, and Zach, not only did you win Jake over through the course of this recording, uh, but you won me over to one of your favorite movies uh, that I never, un- never appreciated uh, or underappreciated until now. Happy to hear it. I think uh, I'm the only person who hasn't broken 80 this season so far. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> Not much hope uh, on the horizon for you. You know what, you. Scott? You um, do have the quiet support of my friend Carlos, who <laughs> loves most of the movies you pick and who especially loves The Fast and the Furious. His feelings are hurt that I trash-talked it so much. My best bet is going to be Furious 7. Because they got an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, Carlos, we give a shout out to you. We also give a shout out to Tegan and all of our other... uh, Zach, who is the other... uh, Oh, I had at least like four people reach out and tell me that they like this movie and they're excited to hear us talk about it, so... Oh, yeah. So, sorry out there to all of our fast stands. We love you. We just patently disagree with you. I don't disagree with you. I think these are fun, good movies. I think uh, on my end, all the people who would tune into Tokyo Drift uh, will 100% not tune into this episode. So <laughs> That's fair. That's Carlos is yeah, certainly not tuning in. The Children of Men episode? He oh, gave yeah. up on the podcast <laughs> after we hated Scarface and then was like, oh my gosh, you guys at Tokyo Drift, I have to listen. And I was like, please don't. 
<laughs> I talked positively about Tokyo yeah. Drift. It's a, it's a fun movie. I did. Movie. I just listened to the episode I, today. I had fun with it. I, it was a, yeah, it was fun. It was fun to listen back to it, too. All right. Uh, next week, we're going to you, Jake. Yeah, we're going to do a movie that Zach is furious about <laughs> called Coco, if you haven't heard of it. <laughs> Zach, in three seconds or less, why does it infuriate you? I'm not going to spoil my thoughts. Dude, I think this episode is just going to be effed up.